Welcome to the BioCurious Podcast, a place for you to be curious about your biology and discover new ways to upgrade and optimize your mind, body, and human performance. The guests on this podcast are trained experts in the fields of functional health, holistic wellness, and biohacking who share my passion to provide useful and actionable information with all of you that I hope will help you to live your best life. I'm so happy that you're here, and I'm excited to get curious together. Today's episode is all about brain hacking. Dr. Andrew Hill, the founder of Peak Brain Institute, teaches us how we can boost our cognitive function with neurofeedback and brain mapping. He's a neuroscientist, entrepreneur, and biohacking advocate with a PhD in cognitive neuroscience from UCLA and is best known for his mission to bring brain hacking technology into mainstream practice. The Peak Brain Institute is a community-oriented company that teaches brain training from a fitness perspective using EEG neurofeedback and QEEG brain mapping to help people achieve their brain performance goals. And if you want the Peak Brain experience for yourself, you can visit the Peak Brain Institutes and try it out with the special listener promotion that Dr. Hill has provided Use the link in the show notes to access it. On this episode, we discuss exciting innovations in neuroscience, optimizing brain mechanics, developing the ability to deeply relax, how to easily access creativity, what brain maps can tell us, the brain and addiction, how neurofeedback can help with recovery, healing brain injury, attaining peak brain performance, re-regulating the brain, balancing GABA and glutamate neurotransmitters, the difference between brain waves, the hypnagogic state, performance bottlenecks in the brain, how to use brain maps for self-experimentation, and the morning routine that will boost your brain power. Dr. Hill, thank you so much for joining the BioCurious podcast. Before we kind of dive into your um, work and what you do as far as brain health and brain mapping and neurofeedback and all of that cool stuff, um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this field of work? Sure. So, um, I mean, at this point, I have a, a neuroscience uh, PhD and I sort of work at a high level. Um, you know, in, in, in performance, uh, as, as, as you described. But before that, I mean, for many years before that, I worked in, you know, various health and human service jobs. Um, I started off working in residential facilities for multiply dis- uh, disabled adults who have, uh, who had um, language impairments and mental retardation and seizures, all kinds of, you know, multiple communication and uh, sort of agency issues because of their, you know, severe impairments. And, I did that work for several years and it's fairly hard work. And, you know, most of the, uh, for me anyways, the, the, the most difficult aspects is that these people are never changing or not changing dramatically. Um, I worked, I, I, I managed a group home for retarded adults for a few years. And, you know, one big accomplishment uh, for a year was teaching somebody to use a fork, you know, with a lot of behavioral shaping. And he ended up sort of, you know, having the ability to use a fork. Didn't love it necessarily. So it was like a you know, mixed uh, success. But um, this sort of long, slow change and major you know, brain issues uh, was something I was working with for a long time. And then I ended up working in psychiatric environments and acute 
uh, crisis psych hospitals with a lot of violent people and people who were um, at the edge of those human cases of things breaking down, you know, both children and adults, and then ended up working in addiction for a while and sort of just was seeing all of these different ways in which humans suffer and ultimately in which they sort of deregulate um, and wasn't seeing a whole lot of uh, uh, impact from most of the, you know, ways we, we uh, try to intervene in people's suffering and struggles, especially psychiatric ones and, and neurological ones. Um, I didn't see a lot of change over 15 years of, of working across different aspects, you know, inpatient through outpatient through residential. Didn't see much change, a lot of holding patterns. You know, I, I worked as a case manager on a teenage unit or a latency age, uh, six to 12, six to 11 year old um, unit for a while. And we had kids just, you know, revolving doors, leaving for a month, ending up in the street, coming back in, just in and out all day long. You know, the same kids would come back every few weeks for, with psychiatric problems or, you know, uh, run afoul of the law or being preyed upon. And it was just you know, heartbreaking to see lots of people moving through essentially a holding pattern of suffering. And then I um, managed to get injured at the, that psych hospital I was working at. And um, oddly enough, that I couldn't keep doing some of the work that I was doing and had to switch fields. And so I went to high tech for a few years. And um, after the, uh, this is a while ago, so the, the, the tech bubble sort of corrected and I ended up uh, shifting out of high tech um, and missed working with you know, humans. Um, and so found an autism center um, that did some neurofeedback and ended up going to work there, mostly because I had lots of experience working with people with uh, you know, severely impaired brains um, and communication differences and you know, language differences and, and cognitive differences. And so it was fairly, you know, good set of skills to bring into an environment that did a lot of autism work. And they were primarily a neurofeedback center, which I was interested in, but didn't have a lot of experience, uh, you know, or a lot of awareness of at that point, because it was you know, still sort of a, a fairly niche thing, you know, even more so than it is now. And um, within a, you know, a few weeks of working at the center in Providence, Rhode Island, I was, I was just shocked by seeing change. I mean, I was seeing ADHD kids have their symptoms lift dramatically. I was seeing the occasional autistic person develop eye contact or even some language you know, uh, being restored. I was seeing seizures being dropped rapidly and really uh, uh, profound sort of impact. Is, you know, seeing these changes was, was shocking to me or impactful because I spent such a long time watching us be ineffective and as far as I knew, you couldn't change these brains with developmental issues or an ADHD was a you know, built-in phenomena. It's, you know, it's not necessarily a disorder, but it's a, a style of brain that shows up. And I didn't necessarily think it was all that changeable. Um, and then I was watching it change in weeks and months for lots of people, for most people. And it was just shocking to me. And I, I um, this was a while ago, this is 15 you know, years ago at this point. And uh, at that point, the field was still fairly, um, I mean, it is now too, uh, fairly, um, uh, replete with people having different ideas about how this stuff works because you know brain scientists I'm, I'm sure you'll agree with this uh, in general don't understand the brain we describe phenomena and we sort of you know talk about little domains of knowledge but there's really not a great overarching view of the brain um, that can integrate a lot of the things we know about the brain we just don't have a good sense of how it all works and it's insanely complex um, you know, the most complex thing we know about you know with more neurons in the brain and there are stars in the sky. Um, it's you know, ridiculously complex things. So we end up describing domains or we end up thinking about the brain through the lens that we end up studying it as neuroscientists. If you're a you know, molecular biologist, you think about 
neurotransmitters and receptors and ligands and things. And if you're an EEG scientist, you think about the brain waves. And if you're, you know, uh, somebody who works on, let's say, structural brain injuries, you might look at um, you know, MRI and, and tissue damage and things. But th this frames how we think about the brain and what we think is important. And um, uh, I guess we along with the answer, but essentially discovering that we had more ability to make changes in the brain than I had, you know, been exposed to. Um, really got me to sort of dig in. And at the time in the field, there were multiple conflicting ideas. And so for me, this, this, this drove the need to go back and get a PhD in studying uh, neurofeedback because there were some really ideas in conflict uh, in terms of how it worked uh, in the field. And yet, uh, all the three or four, you know, three or four schools of thought or schools of approach in neurofeedback at that time we're all getting really good results across different complaints and performance goals. And they're all getting really good results compared to most medications for those same complaints. And yet the ideas underpinning the, the sort of mechanism of neurofeedback across those schools were in conflict. For me, this is what I call a blind man and elephant situation. You know, we all had a piece of what we you know, think is the truth and we're describing that thing right in front of us thinking we know, you know, oh, the elephant's ear is a leaf and the tail is a snake. And we all have a, you know, a hint of something, but no one's got the idea in neurofeedback. And so this prompted me to go back and get a PhD studying EEG a little more and cognitive neuroscience and neurofeedback to try to get a better sense of what's happening as we um, change the brain. Because I was seeing the changes happen everywhere in, a, in, in brain challenges across you know, the range of, of brain challenges. And I couldn't really understand what was happening. And at, the, at that time, and still to some extent, we don't really understand what's happening deeply in you know, this domain. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the brain and how it works, which is why I'm studying mind-body medicine, which is really the, the science and art of how the brain and the mind interact with the body. Yeah. And neurofeedback is one of the areas that I'm really interested in. It's such a new field, which is crazy because, you know, the brain is not new. Um, <laughs> and we know so little about it. It's kind of like the earth and the ocean. It's like mm -hmm. uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. And we it, only, yeah. yeah, we've only scratched the surface, but it's also so exciting because our brain and what we can do with it is so much more powerful than we ever knew before. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that the brain is essentially plastic in a way without a better way to describe it, where we can shape it and grow it. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, when brain cells die before we thought, you know, once you lose a brain cell, that's irreversible, like you're never coming back from that. And now we're finding that that is not true. Yeah. Yeah. And even, even elders are making yeah. 700 brain cells a day yes. or something, you know, it's so, crazy. Yeah. And, and this was only, you know, five years ago, they were saying, you know, that brain damage from like drug and alcohol use is permanent and it's just not true. It was bad information. And it's only recently coming out that you can reverse some of these things. And even they're finding that Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and dementia yeah. Yeah. are all reversible. It's crazy. Yeah. And it's so exciting. For me, I, I know for you too, because you're also a nerd about the brain like I am. <laughs> um, and so I wanted to go back to something you mentioned, and this is mm. one of my areas of passion, which is neurofeedback for folks who are suffering from addiction. Mm -hmm. And this is something, um, I'm a health scientist at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and this is a big area that, um, that they work on in 
specifically the opioid epidemic, looking at alternative lifestyle and other therapies that are not opioids for pain management. And what has been your experience or, or kind of the research you've come across in the field? Yeah. Um, the, the field of neurofeedback has a long history with addiction is a short answer. Most of it with alcohol. Um, and the alcohol addiction sort of support with neurofeedback is fairly profound. Um, it, uh, uh, you know, 20, 30 years of research around it and many, many papers showing that by, by creating the ability to deeply relax, you re-regulate the brain's ability to be self-controlled, essentially. So um, with opiates, it's more about, um, as you say, pain relief and using neurofeedback as an alternative intervention. Uh, we can do that. We have good pain, uh, usually pain protocols, if you will, for people to help them reduce central pain, especially or pain from the brain. Um, but in terms of uh, alcohol, you know, if you look at the brain maps, um, just to unpack some, some terms for folks, a QEEG or quantitative EEG is a way of looking at the brain where you measure a resting baseline of your brain. So you put a cap on the head and sit there for 10 minutes or so and record eyes closed and eyes open data and look at your brain um, compared to the average person your age. And in chronic long-term drinkers, you see a couple of things, high amounts of beta waves and high coherence or connectivity in, in beta waves, uh, sort of locked or stuck together beta, and then often low amounts of slow brain waves, deltas and thetas, and often hypocoherence or reduced connectivity in those slow brain waves. And these are sort of hyper aroused individuals. Um, and if you look at their brain, it looks like they're really ridiculously busy. And those individuals feel busy. They're shaky, they're nervous, their minds are bouncing around. Um, they can't fall asleep without a drink typically, these hyper-aroused, dependent alcoholics. And you see this in the brain maps, in the QEEGs, even a month or two or three after they've been sober, or years sometimes after they've been sober. So what you've done is you've re-regulated the brain. And if you, you know, give yourself alcohol, if you take alcohol, um, I'm sure many of your listeners have, have had a drink or two, and that warm, smooth feeling that creeps in, a drink or two in, is a GABA, a neurotransmitter release called GABA. And GABA is the, uh, in adults, is the universally um, inhibitory neurotransmitter. And it's balanced with another one called glutamate, which is universally excitatory, meaning if GABA is being released, it always calms down, makes things less likely to fire. And glutamate always makes things more likely to fire. And they're very tight balance in the brain. And you can't really, you shouldn't push them out of balance too much. Um, if you drink lots of alcohol, GABA goes up and you pass out. And if you become dependent on, al on alcohol, the brain starts to use the alcohol, the external environment, the exogenous GABAergic signal, if you will, to regulate. And it starts to ramp down its own um, GABA production and ramp up its own glutamate production to balance the GABA that's coming in, essentially, the, the signal. And this produces a, a, a lot of dependency and addiction on the alcohol. And then when there's withdrawal, this is why you have cardiovascular you know, uh, activation events, heart rate and blood pressure and stroke risk and things like that if you're profoundly alcoholic and you withdraw suddenly. Um, that's why seizures happen because you sort of remove that um, inhibitory tone. The, the glutamate, gluta, excuse me, um, the GABA glutamate balance Again, if you have more GABA than you should, you pass out. But if you go toward the glutamate direction, you have seizures. So this is why when you withdraw from alcohol, you can have seizures if you're quite dependent. But even years later, sometimes or months later, you'll see in the brain maps, a brain that essentially is still crying out for this GABAergic tone and has forgotten how to relax and is hyperlocked into a sort of glutamatergic or irritated or activated state. You see something similar in chronic pain sometimes too, this overactivated 
beta waves and hypercoherence or overconnected beta. And you see it in certain regions involved with awareness of uh, reward, awareness of pain, awareness of the body. Um, and, and you can see this, you know, addiction and pain are often similar or hyperarousal from addiction, from alcohol anyways, and chronic pain from, you know, hyperarousal of the brain in that way. Look very similar from a very coarse metric of something like a brain map. And they also respond fairly well. So in the case of alcohol, you can uh, train what's called alpha-theta neurofeedback, where you measure someone's ability to downregulate their cortex. You put a wire in the back of the head and have them close their eyes, and alpha waves go up when you close your eyes in the visual system. If, you can able, if you're able to uh, decouple or, or turn off the visual or sensory systems, which are quite expensive for the brain to run, if you're able to, to turn them off with your eyes closed, the brain likes to because it's a you know, better rest mode. But if you've learned the world isn't predictable or safe when your eyes are closed, the back of the brain can stay kind of vigilant and lit up just in case, kind of anxious state. And then through these environmental sort of learning things like alcoholism, you end up with a brain that's hyper aroused in this activated aware state too. So neurofeedback will take that brain and moment to moment, it'll measure the alpha and the theta waves to the things that alcoholics don't make especially robustly generally. Um, and whenever those waves happen to shift up a little bit, something will happen in the neurofeedback uh, software. It'll play audio usually. And um, alpha theta training or neurofeedback's done with eyes closed. And it brings you to the hypnogogic state, the edge of sleep. And I'm sure many people will recognize the description of about to fall asleep and you have the best idea ever or you remember the thing you really got to do tomorrow and then or some creative impulse shows up and you, you know, solve something and then you fall asleep because you spent 30 seconds or a minute in that state and then you fall asleep and you forget the next day wait i had some great idea yesterday ah oh, what was it um a hypnogogic state it's a non-linear sort of non-conscious state almost it's almost almost associative and it allows you to, to be receptive because your theta waves go up and um, for a little neuroscience primer in waves, uh, theta is high when you're in a receptive attention mode, um, but it's also sort of low inhibition. Lots of information gets in, you end up being information seeking if your theta stays high, you put different patterns together if theta's high. And if alpha's high, you're kind of in this neutral, resting, quiescent kind of mode. And so when you close your eyes, they both go a little up, and then when you deeply relax, what happens is your alpha and theta will surge together, and then at the edge of sleep, just before you're in stage one sleep, your alpha waves will drop, the idling will drop, and the theta waves will actually surge dramatically. And it's almost like this decoupling internally, where your mind goes nonlinear and you sort of have stuff bubbling up and juicy internal states can happen and become generative and, and, and creativity happens and you're aware of your emotions and ideas bubble up. Now, if you have trauma and anxiety, that also bubbles up. So you shouldn't do alpha theta training if there's lots of stuff you don't want you know, to experience. Um, but over time, doing some alpha theta, you know, a dozen sessions of alpha theta with, with these chronic hyper-aroused alcoholics will retrain the brain to such an extent that people can fall asleep at will without alcohol within a few weeks. Uh, reliably, and the brain maps also change. The, you know, the, the resting activity of the brain changes quite a lot within a few weeks, usually. Um, and then on the opiate side, you end up with people who are using opiates for a bunch of reasons, typically pain management, or it's simply addiction at this point because of long-term history of you know, managing opiates. Um, I often can't work on the opiate addiction directly with neurofeedback because the opiates themselves are blunting learning. If you're taking large amounts of opiates, 
um, you're blunting learning in the brain to some extent. It's very hard to work through. There's some things you can do to you know, other forms of neurofeedback like infrared blood flow training that work better, but it's very hard to do EEG training with lots of opiates on board, so to speak. So what you're working with is often people that are weaning or, or coming off of it, experiencing a couple of things, um, chronic pain going up because you know, they're trying to get off meds or anxiety because there's this uh, you know, withdrawal effect, uh, sleep onset, especially issues as the brain tries to re-regulate -re in the absence of the opiate. Um, and lots of other regulatory things will fray as people have medication shifts. And so you can look at the um, sleep onset and depth issues, the anxiety, the, the chronic pain. Those are all things neurofeedback can go after and often make a fairly large impact um, for, for individual to individual. Um, and over time, neurofeedback generally produces uh, a permanent change. So you sort of have the opportunity to take control of your plasticity, as you said earlier, it's, you know, changeability of the brain. Uh, essentially, this is the unofficial slogan of peak brain that shift happens. You know, it's not so much that your brain can change, it's that it is changing. And your job, your responsibility, your opportunity here is to take control of that change and steer it. So you know, with tools like neurofeedback and QEEG, you can get a sense of where the big performance bottlenecks are in your brain and then simply go after them and train them away. Like you might want to train out your, you know, weak biceps or get better core strength. You have the same degree of agency to change the regulatory features of your brain, things like stress, sleep, attention, um, as well as, you know, psychiatric or, you know, pinch conditions or bottlenecks where, typical regulatory features have gotten a little bit strained or cramped. I mean, it's many, most of the things we call disorders are not actually unusual weird disease states in the brain. They're just a normal regulatory feature that's gotten pinched or cramped. So I'll give you an example. Um, in the case of PTSD, I'm sure you know this, but the uh, back midline of the brain, the posterior cingulate cortex is involved with uh, evaluating the environment. So it scans what's happening and it watches your behavior, your performance, and it looks for conflict, it looks for safety issues, and it throws a flag in the play if you are not safe. So if you drop your phone in the car, and you're fishing around looking at your feet, a couple of seconds later, there's a sense of watch the road, and that's coming from the posterior cingulate, reorienting your attention because you might not be safe right now. So that's, that's natural, we, we need that response, we need to, to monitor the environment, you know? But if the brain learns the world is not predictable or safe often enough or acutely enough, then it will ramp up the posterior cingulate to always evaluate. And now instead of simply lo looking for what's happening around you and, and you know, appropriately evaluating, there's an intrusive, if you will, evaluation process going on where you're ruminating, where you're threat sensitive. And that can bleed over when it gets extreme into disruptions in other regulatory states like sleep or you know, feeling calm without threat you know, being chronically activated. And then the anterior cingulate, you know, the, in the front, the similar circuit involved with switching your attention, deciding what's important. When that one gets a bit active or overactive, you end up with things like OCD or perseveration or biting your nails or songs in your head all day long. And so you end up with this opportunity to go after your resources and go, ooh, which ones are getting in my way? Let's find them, let's work on them and, uh, you know, take control. So this is really what, what, what drew me to pursue this stuff, not because it's, um, you know, medical perspective, you know, perspective where it was 20, 30 years ago, but like, you know, the field you're moving into this optimization, wellness, biohacking, you know, mind body sort of intersection, this, this moves wellness, this moves performance, this moves, um, 
optimization out of the hands, out of the domain of the skilled medical and psychiatric practitioner into the domain of the individual. And I would argue that we've been working on our own minds as individuals for longer than we've had medical and psychiatric pr practitioners. You know, we, we abscond a little bit from our responsibility to take control of our mind. Um, but we do, we have an opportunity to control our emotions and our thoughts and to, you know, just the same way we do to, you know, pay our bills and to brush our teeth. We have some, some responsibility here and some opportunity to, to, you know, be in charge and be in control of, of what our bodies and brains are doing. So mm. um, neurofeedback gives us this, this overall perspective. I'm a little, a little rambling now, but. Uh, the reason why I'm so passionate about you know, finding some sort of a solution for the opioid epidemic because my mom is actually had an opioid addiction for many mm. years and it was, um, you know, a result of, of bad healthcare yeah. <laughs> um, practice. And eventually she, it got so bad that she had a stroke mm. and now She's been clean from that, which I'm so grateful, and that she didn't die from it because she almost did. And wow. and now wow. she's left with symptoms. Um, yeah, sure. And you know she's got tremors, and her mind just doesn't work the way it used to, and she has a hard time recalling words. And mm -hmm. so you know, essentially, I I am convinced that neurofeedback can really make sure. a huge difference for her but i want to understand it because she will trust me if i can yeah, help her. yeah there's a lot so, you can do yeah. and, and with someone like that i mean you should think about what's um going to change first and most reliably mm -hmm. and and what might take a long time because right. for instance the tremor is probably some deeper damage or it's um mm -hmm. essential tremor you know because of the sensitization or something and that yeah. that may be a, a hard thing to move i mean i have effective tremor in parkinson's but it's obviously a limbic, mm. limbic system not you know essential tremor so right. it's a little bit easier to work on when it's truly brain you know deep brain um but what what you what you should get excited about and this is what i tell my clients you know you should get excited about stuff that you want to work on not worried if we go to a brain map and we find something in your brain i'm like oh hey here's a you know high theta beta ratio this usually shows up with impulsivity are you impulsive oh you are great mm -hmm. we found something <laughs> that you want to work on cool not not oh i'm sorry sir here's what's wrong with you it's always like great this is does this match your performance goals it does wonderful yeah so with your mom you look at her brain uh, and you would probably see with her word finding issues you would probably see slowed alpha speeds. Her speed of processing mm -hmm. will have dropped with the injuries, essentially, the, you know, the oxidation or the acute injuries or the stroke. You know, her speed of processing is probably lower than it needs to be. And that shows up as resting eyes closed, linked ears alpha. So look at PZ alpha, uh, posterior midline alpha, with eyes closed. And that's just over the alpha generator in the cortex. When you close your eyes, it shuts off because it's expensive. And if you don't see um, a fast enough alpha, it means that she's running slow. She's driving around with the emergency brake on. Mm -hmm. And you can train that up literally for her. And then she'll get crisp, fast verbal fluency again, word finding, access, afternoon delayed recall stuff will go away a little bit. She'll feel crisper and sharper, really reliable to work on. And then for the stroke stuff, I'm assuming some vascular damage, of course. So you mm -hmm. want probably to look at um, PIR, HEG, passive infrared hemoencephalography. That's what we use. It's not an EEG training, but it's an HEG. H is hemo here uh, for blood. So you're measuring, uh, Jeff Carmen invented PIRHEG and uh, Dr. Carmen um, describes PIR as um, measuring the waste heat of metabolic processes. So essentially blood flow dynamics or metabolism, but using heat as a proxy for metabolic load. Mm. 
So you, you wear an infrared camera pointing inward on your forehead and you get a coarse measurement of, of heat load essentially and your mom will practice moving it up and down. And mm. that'll pump blood through her vasculature and make it much more robust and stable and probably cause new capillary development. So it may bring back some you know, areas that are under perfused or ischemic or something still. Um, and then you would, of course, want to look at thing, the core regulatory things like my hunch is she's anxious. My hunch is her sleep maintenance is crap, pardon my language, um, because it tends to be. And she may have some chronic pain because of, you know, breakthrough pain or opiate sensitization, you know, histories. So there's a bunch of other, you know, quality of life things I want to go after for her in a neurofeedback context. But the exciting things are the clarity of her mind, word finding, um, all that, you know, ba basic deep stuff is actually the most tractable. Yeah. So. I'm, that's why this field of work excites me so much mm. because before we used to think that, you know, once you have a stroke or once you have brain injury from whether it be overdose or, you know, long-term use of drugs or even, you know, like a, a concussion or something that it's not reversible. And it just makes me so happy to even just hear you say that she could have profound um, improvement because mm -hmm. and the more that she's able to think clearly, she's going to be more confident to be able mm -hmm. to go out into the world and do things. You know, an injury like your mom has with a visible tremor or, um, you know, balance issues or someone that has oh, yeah. cognitive issues or someone that has communication issues. You know, audio, we, we, many of us get auditory and visual sensory issues as we get older. And those things change relationships and change how you communicate and change agency and put you at risk for, you know, not noticing dangers. Like you, if you can't smell that well, you might eat spoiled food. You know, if, you, mm. if your temperature sensing is off when you're an old, every, every year in New York City, you know, hundreds of elders, hundreds, dozens of elders die every winter from freezing mm -hmm. to death because they couldn't tell their apartments were cold enough, or sorry, were cold enough to turn the heat on. And they sat there and fell asleep in front of the television and died because they froze to death because the te temperature sensing wasn't quite as good as it should be. You oh know, there's God. a bunch of things that are simply um, lack of agency, if you will. We, we aren't in control mm -hmm. of our systems. And when you have a major injury or when you have a, a setback, you know, your mom had a setback with a stroke and with some, you know, actually some some physical limitations she's quite self-conscious about. Um, and I'm, 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 mm -hmm. I'm lumping the word finding into the physical here because it's a speed. Oh, yeah. um, you know, that robs her of agency and, and there's so much stigma around not having complete control of your, your faculties all the time. Yeah. That it, 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 she's at risk for essentially having secondary impairments that are much more about the socialized impacts and much less about the brain. And so good for you yeah. for recognizing that that can be an impact because it's a huge impact for many elders. Oh, yeah. And, you know, my mom's not even old. She's in her mid 50s. She okay. has a long life to live. She's still, young which old. Is yeah, why, yeah. Yeah. So which is why I'm like, we got to, you know, get we got to uh -huh. deal with this because you still have a lot of life to live and it could, these could be your best years you've ever had. Um, you know, she, and I, if you ever talked to her, you wouldn't even notice. She's just really self-conscious about it. Uh -huh. um, and I think it's because she, you know, she's always been growing up. She's been a total badass. Just like she would work three jobs. She was always like the leader at work. She was always the leader in the home. Like she, you couldn't get one buyer. She's always been very sharp and fast. And now, you know, she's not quite like that anymore. Yeah. And so I think 
going from like a really kind of like high performance human to more maybe normal is it makes her feel um really self-conscious so i want to be able to get her back to feeling confident and being comfortable in Mm -hmm. her body and the way that her brain works you should have um a really good tool with neurofeedback to make a large impact um, not just in cognitive mm-hmm. stuff, but even physical sometimes. I have physical therapists calling me sometimes or OT people calling me. You know, some, some elder will come in or some client will come in with a brain injury and some spasticity or some tension, you know, walking with a cane or something and some balance issues. And a few weeks later, I'll get a shocked call from an OT going, what are you doing? You stop <laughs> using the cane, you know? So yeah. like there can be some body things happening too. I yeah. never, you know, promise or mention those usually ahead of time because they're, right. they're kind of, you know, uh, lucky accident but we, mm. when you're bathing the brain with increased plasticity factors all kinds of things change i oh, mean you yeah. may you may have read this study but there's a study uh the authors are escaping me but there's a study from maybe five years ago um one single session of neurofeedback produces a measurable increase in plasticity in the motor cortex one single session wow. um fisher uh, uh was highlighting a paper a couple of weeks ago one single session over PZ to, to downtrain uh, alpha can shut off the periaqueductal gray in early trauma and took a group of uh, dissociative PTSD people in one session showed fMRI coupling changes between the amygdala and the posterior cingulate and the periaqueductal gray. So everyone knows the amygdala is. It sort of tags, you know, threat sensitivity and fear and emotions uh, with memories. I described the posterior cingulate earlier. It's a little evaluator. The PAG's job is to sort of yell at those two guys to get ready to notice the danger. So if you early in your life had some, or maybe, you know, pre-verbal or or, uh, as a child had some danger happen to you, then you may have in the back of your mind or your brain, this little part of your brain that's yelling at your brain, at yourself for having missed the danger or the trauma at some point to make sure you don't do it ever again. And sometimes it's extreme, it can be very extreme and produce dissociative stuff when there's more PTSD features. Um, There's a paper out a few weeks ago showing that one single session of neurofeedback at, at the back there will decouple this angry, self-blaming, kind of alerting to danger uh, experience that may be deeply embedded from a long trauma. Oh my gosh, that's, it's just so incredible. And the brain is so powerful. We can literally do anything with our brain. Um, Almost, yeah. Yeah, so for folks who aren't familiar, I know a lot of people have heard about brain training and neurofeedback, but I think the lesser known aspect of this is the brain mapping component and how that is used. So for instance, if, if I brought my mom in and we wanted to do a brain map so that we know like what to work on, how does that work? What are you looking for? And also like in a healthy person like me, I'm an um, endurance athlete. If I want to improve my physical performance, like what sorts of things would you look for in my brain map? Yeah, so, so brain mapping or quantitative EEG is this high-level look at your resources. And you have to sort of think about this a little differently than a medical you know, read. Um, I always tell people that brain mapping is not really uh, diagnostic. It's sort of prognostic or a hypothesis generator. And so instead of saying what's wrong with you with brain mapping, you say what's unusual. And from there, you develop an idea. Okay, when this is unusual, sometimes, given the neuroscience, people experience X. Or sometimes in the literature, people experience Y. Do you experience X or Y? Oh, you do. Okay, this might be it then. So you can't sort of, you know, 
people often expect me to know everything about them from their brain maps. And I, and I can do <laughs> a lot of interesting things and, and predict things about you. And I do the maps, uh, the, the, the reading on the maps cold. I don't do a clinical history first, which is a bit of a party trick, but it's fun for everyone to realize that, yes, there's some stuff in there that you care about. Um, we, we do alongside the brain mapping uh, an attention test, an executive function uh, CPT, measure your impulsivity, your focus, your auditory and visual attention. And then the brain maps, we put a cap on your head, squirt it full of gel, have you sit still, have you open and close your eyes, uh, maybe five, 10 minutes of each, and then compare that resting baseline to a normative database of other people who are typical and heavily screened. And we find the ways in which you are really unusual compared to the average person. And that may predict, again, performance bottlenecks. Um, we don't care that you're not average. The goal isn't to say, ooh, why aren't you normal? Why aren't you on the mean? And make you that with neurofeedback. The goals are to use the ways in which you're a statistical sore thumb here and there and see if those matter. So again, it's not a doctor saying, here's what's wrong with you, ma'am. It's a coach saying, hey, we did some performance analyses. Do these things seem to match what you care about for your next set of goals? And so, you know, in the U.S., there's probably 5,000 practitioners doing neurofeedback worldwide, probably no more than 10,000. And um, almost all of them are therapists. And, and that's the big difference in peak brain versus everyone else is we're really trying to become this sort of um, uh, place for you to take control of your own brain health. You know, the way an athlete might go to a coach and say, hey, I have this goal, um, this, this meet, this performance goal several months away, uh, help me get there. And the coach looks at your performance data and says, great, I think I can operationalize some exercise for you to get you to your goals. Let's try some stuff and iterate and see what happens. Build some new exercises, see what happens, uh, adjust. Get you to measure again, keep you, keep, keep you moving. And so that's generally how we work. Um, the brain mapping will give us uh, some sense of what's unusual. So I tell clients, it's really a multi-step process looking at your brain map. So I'll say to you something like, yeah, here's what's unusual. Here's what it could mean. And then you make the meaning from that. You say, okay, yes, that sounds like it's valid or important or plausible or familiar for me. And then the next question becomes, okay, well, do you want to work on that? So not everything we find that's unusual is a problem, right? Um, in the case of, I mentioned the anterior cingulate before, the front midline switching system that decides what's important to focus on. And when it gets a bit overactive or cramped, you end up with this sort of OCD-like perseverative stuck on things mind. But the high front midline anterior cingulate, the high beta waves, you know, a couple of standard deviations higher than average with eyes closed. If that shows up, this site called FC, as you know, but front midline for other folks, um, if that shows up with your eyes closed, I go, oh, okay, your anterior cingulate's a bit uh, more active than usual. That's true. Um, but what it means, it might mean a little bit of OCD. It also might mean a little bit of CEO. You know, it's the same kind of phenomena to be highly focused and organized. <laughs> and if you have a steel trap mind, maybe it works great for you, but not as, I mean, Steve Jobs probably had some of this like, you know, uh, OCD CEO overlap where it worked really well for him, not, a, not especially well from, for his immediate uh, report from what I hear. But, um, you know, it, it doesn't mean it's a problem per se, you know, this yeah. vigilance or this, um, you know, switching system. So I can't tell what's wrong until it's unusual. And then together, like an athlete and a coach, do they go over the fitness data and figure out where the big things to work on might be that are obvious in the data. And then I would ask you questions and figure out what else you want to work on. Like the hypnogogic state training produces profound access to creativity, um, as well as that you know, anti-alcoholism sort of down-regulation thing that it can do. But, the, but I wouldn't see a lack of creativity in your brain. But you might say, ooh, creativity is a goal. Great. So peak performers often want creativity, that, that flow entries. The alpha-theta training not only re-regulates re the alcoholic, hyper-aroused, you know, glutamatergic sort of tone, 
needs to be pulled back on. But it really dramatically brings up your creativity, your uh, access to your own emotions. Uh, there's a, a somewhat questionable diagnosis called alexithymia, which is about not being able to talk about your own emotions. Basically, being a middle-aged dude uh, in today's society <laughs> is, is alexithymia. And alpha theta gets you able to talk about what you're feeling if you've been shut down that way. So I have um, I work with a lot of like high-level, you know, major high-performer CEO types <coughs> who generally don't have time for the more nuanced, subtle stuff, and nor do they want to do meditation or anything else. But after dealing with their anxiety and performance and everything else, we often get into alpha theta. And some of the times I get calls from their spouses later on. Oh, thank you so much for whatever that protocol was yesterday. I had a really nice talk. <laughs> so, <That's awesome. laughs> you know, you, you, you can just decide which resources to go after. And for you as a peak performer, I'd want to look at not just the brain maps, but your performance data. Are you impulsive? You know, are you able to inhibit appropriately? Is your speed of reaction time where you want it to be? If you're super fast reaction times, great. But if you're also impulsive, you're not going to be an especially good athlete in any sort of competitive sport because you can't control how your body works, you know, mm. overreacting, underreacting kind of stuff. So yeah. we would look at that. And if I saw some uh, of that performance in your brain, you're a little bit impulsive under a high stress circumstance, let's say. Um, and you said, yeah, yeah, when I uh, fence or whatever it is, I get a little bit, you know, reactive and I can't quite be in the zone. Okay, let's look at your brain. Oh, don't see any high theta beta ratios, which means you actually aren't impulsive against the population. You aren't ADHD. That's a 94% um, accurate screen for ADHD, by the way. It's the only thing brain mapping wow. is truly diagnostic is the ADHD markers. Um, mm. For some people, you, you can be weird and have those features in your brain and not show up as typical. But if you have a high theta beta ratio, chances are you're you know, ADHD 94% of the time. So if I didn't find that in you, let's say I didn't find that, but you still were getting a little bit impulsive, it doesn't matter we didn't find it. We just trained the theta down, trained the beta up, and you would get more locked in. So there's some of like, where are the outliers? What does that suggest for bottlenecks? And there's some of like, ooh, what else do you want to work on? Um, and you construct a set of workout plans, essentially with a handful of different protocols, spots in the head to measure, you know, brain waves to applaud when they went up or down, or connectivity changed. And then gradually, a few times a week, you come in for half an hour or you train yourself at home for half an hour a few times a week. And after a few sessions, your brain starts to move and you feel different and you report back in just like to your coach, what's happening? And you try different things and learn and move resources and remeasure the brain. And so the brain mapping um, in general at the beginning, again, gives us these hypotheses, these ideas, what could be worth working on. But one nice feature about brain mapping is it doesn't change without interventions. A brain map on you today, and assuming you, did, you weren't doing, I know you probably are doing lots of crazy things to your brain, but assuming you weren't doing lots of crazy things to your brain, a year from now, your brain maps will be the same, no, no different. And the next year and the year after that, there's really no difference uh, at a high level in your average brain activity year yes. after year. But if you took lots of stimulants or had a brain injury or spent six months meditating or did a couple of months of neurofeedback, then you would see changes. And so while we don't know what the patterns necessarily mean at the beginning, as you remap the brain and have experience differences and see performance differences and, show, and, and see things trending across time, then you start to really understand yourself. This is one reason why we, um, Peak Brain has a policy of never charging for remapping. So while you're doing neurofeedback with us, we map your brain every 20 sessions or so, and we get about a standard deviation of change, which is mm. kind of a lot, actually. Um, yeah. 
subjectively you feel a huge change with a standard deviation. You know, we get 15, 20 points on attention testing every, you know, 15, 20 sessions in our feedback. We get a, a standard deviation of change on brain mapping. Um, if you have big outliers, it happens every 20 sessions or so. And that's about how often we map. But if you're not doing neurofeedback, we still would love to see you every six months or a year. Come back, map, see what's going on. You know, check in with yeah. performance goals. Um, come back and map clean and then on caffeine or on Adderall if you want to, or on your favorite nootropic stack. You want to see what it's doing? Dig in. We'll help you construct your own experiments. And we provide sort of open access. So our brain mapping is not an assessment we do for you. It's a data access sort of program we let you into. Um, and, then you, and then teach you how to use uh, your own data. So I, I teach you to read your brain maps. I don't write reports for you. So it's this different relationship we have with our clients. You know, coaching an athlete is not really a, a doctor, you know, patient relationship. If all you have is some ADHD, then, you know, three, four months with traditional neurofeedback will almost always, you know, knock it down permanently and dramatically. Um, but there's things you can do uh, that are ongoing, like peak performance. Or in the case of your mom with an injury as part of the equation, she'll need more training. She'll need you know, four to six months minimum, not three to four months. Or autism or peak performance, you're kind of doing it longer term. So um, for people without access to tech or you know, practitioners or who want to get deeper into it, we offer workshops at our big offices. So in Los Angeles and St. Louis, we have standing workshops every month. And then in my um, satellites, I, I go about once a year, twice a year to, to London, to Sweden, and do uh, other workshops um, you know, quarterly, basically, in, in, uh, throughout the world. I can do in New York City sometime in the spring. Um, and, and we offer these three-day or two-day workshops where we essentially train you in the basics of neurofeedback. And throughout that process, you get your brain mapped, you learn how to read your brain maps, you learn the basics of the software and hardware, you learn how to stick wires to your head, um, you uh, learn some of uh, you know, the overall framework of what training is and how to move through it and how to be experimental and what happens if you push too hard or what happens, you know, how, how to deal with side effects. And we then um, send you home after this little workshop, knowing essentially the basics of how to do it, but not necessarily what to do. And we have a three-month minimum coaching program after that that we have you in. Um, some folks do it for six months. But we always start with three uh, as part of the program. And for those three months, you have a weekly call with a dedicated coach. You have a live Slack or chat-based uh, app that you're getting support from if you need it. Um, the whole senior team at Peak Brain, all the, all the coaches are on your Slack channel, a dedicated Slack channel for, you know, Caleb Biocurious. And um, when you have a quick question, you pop on. Or if you're wondering if a wire is the right place on your head, you can pop on and, you know, paste a picture in. And then weekly, you'll talk to your coach about what's going on, the more nuanced things. And then daily, we would like you to send us surveys. In the morning, let us know how your sleep was. In the afternoon, let us know how your day was. And over time, since this is pretty gentle stuff and iterative, we start to get a picture of what's happening. And, you know, 10, 20, 30 sessions in, you're having really dramatic changes, but you've also learned how to use the process. You've learned how to, what happens if you feel a little fatigued afterwards, or if you throw your sleep off a little bit, you know how to adjust that protocol. And so then you own the hardware. And people usually keep training for the first year without too much need for support. I mean, a year's a lot of training. So, you know, many people with big peak performance goals will do 50, 60, 70 sessions. And that's only like, you know, four or five, six months of training. So you don't have to do it for a year to get really permanent and big changes. But um, the clients in the home program will essentially get the gear, do a workshop, spend three months getting heavily supported, and then it's open-ended. They can continue to train. 
There's no charge because they're hardware and software. I think one of the packages of software needs a renewal license at a year, but you have up to the first year to really crank on your brain. And brain maps are free for you for life. So we'd love to see you every so often. Come on back, get a map done. We'll interpret it, go over it with you. And then give you a little nudge, you know, hey, well, we'll try these protocols. And we won't charge you for more training support unless you want, like, you know, the coaching, weekly supervision, live support, a shared chart of your protocols and results we're working off of, that kind of stuff. But essentially, clients get the same uh, degree of change and the permanence and effect when they're training themselves at home as you would if you're training yourself in the office. The only difference is you have to be your own skilled technician. So you have to communicate that skill set to you and get, get you up and running. And it, it's a bit of a process to iterate through different protocols and see how they work. And so we don't want to set you free. There, there's, no, there's no effective one-size-fits-all one neurofeedback. Not for many people. It really, it, it really, um, it's really necessary to tailor the process as you go to get the best effects. And so we really want to get you up and running in those first few months for yourself, your kid, your friends and family so that you have dialed in all the workouts that are working for you. And then you can really just keep going for months without um, active support, if, unless you want it. Um, and that's the uh, essentially remote or self-training program. Um, some of our clients also do concierge programs. There's a few cities we have technicians living in where they travel to you. They can come to your office or home and do some you know, uh, uh, personal one-on-one -on -one training. Uh, but you know, we also have physical offices, as you know, in. Uh, LA, Orange County, St. Louis, Sweden, uh, London. Um, I think I'm missing one. Someone will yell at me later. But anyways, uh, um, lots of ways to get in and uh, take control of your brain and decide what you want to work on. Uh, if you're near an office, come and meditate with us too. We have free mindfulness classes several times a week with really good teachers. Um, no charge at all for mindfulness. So um, please feel free to come in and you know, either hack your brain with us or come and sit and practice in mindfulness if you want to. That's amazing. And so for people who do want to do that, um, and you mentioned where your locations are, but where, where do they search for the info yeah, on the web? Sure. So peakbraininstitute.com is our website, but we also tend to all the cities where we have groups, we, we put them on meetup.com as well. So there's mm, Costa Mesa cool. Peak, Peak Brain Meetup. There's a uh, Culver City or Los Angeles, rather, I think Peak Brain Meetup. And there's a St. Louis Peak Brain Meetup. Those are the three offices that have groups. Um, awesome. And then there's a few other places we have uh, services, but we don't have any um, teachers or other, you know, other groups going on in those other locations. Right. Awesome. Well, this is so exciting. And I think so many people are going to find value in this conversation, but um, I know we're running out of time, which I would love to speak with you all day long about <laughs> this stuff. But um, I want to ask you a couple of questions that I sure. ask all of my podcast guests. And one of them is, um, as you probably know, in the field of biohacking, morning routines have become a really popular topic mm -hmm. of discussion. And so I was curious if you have a morning routine and if so, what it includes. Mm. Yeah. So I tend to be one of those very early morning rising entrepreneurs. Uh, in the past couple of years, I, developed, I adopted a uh, 4 a.m. Uh, wake time, roughly. And um, I've dialed it in pretty well. So I actually wake up usually by four um, without an alarm. I tend to set an alarm a little after four just in case, but I haven't wow. actually uh, had it go off and wake me up in probably months at this point. Um, 
and I uh, spent a couple hours, you know, doing, um, well, depending on, on if I'm being health, healthy that month or if I'm slacking that month, I'll uh, either do an hour, hour and a half of yoga um, and then move into emails for an hour or so before my company wakes up and I start getting hammered with lots of, you know, calls and, and uh, requests and all the Slack <laughs> uh, questions from all the clients training throughout the world and all the different offices, all the technicians checking in about clients walking in. Um, that starts about um, 6 a.m. Uh, my time. So I'm usually up a couple hours ahead of time so I can get a workout in, um, drink black coffee, uh, uh, fast for the first few hours of the day. I, I'm, I think it's important to fast at the beginning and the end of the day. And I'm mm -hmm. not a big fan of biohacker uh, strategies of intermittent fasting by um, pushing your meals late in the day. I think it's the absolute wrong thing to do. I think you should be fasting, more fasting in the second half of the day than the first, ideally, for intermittent fasting. Mm. And that's most about sleep regulation. This all ties into the morning routine. If you eat late at night, you suppress growth hormone after you fall asleep, essentially. And you also delay your circadian rhythm, especially women who are right. at the end of their circadian phase uh, earlier in the evening, so to speak. So eating later in the evening delays your phase much more than it does for men. But then if you go to bed with insulin in your system, you don't get a big growth hormone pulse you know, 100 minutes into sleep the way you normally do. So it's a vicious cycle. You have delayed circadian, sleeping lightly, waking up tired, and you end up like, you know, pushing yourself the next day and it repeats. So I manage that, that sort of stress and circadian stuff very, very carefully. And mostly that's about keeping my morning wake time consistent. Um, it's, it's well regulated now, but if it gets thrown off, I do a few things to get it back on track. Um, I don't care so much about my bedtime. Uh, and I make sure to fast for at least three or four hours in the evening to make mm -hmm. sure the hours of sleep I am getting are super deep. And, you know, I'm 40, almost 49. And I'm not getting much growth hormone produced by my body. My, my, excuse me. I'm not getting much growth hormone produced by my body. So I really want to optimize what I am getting, which means having no insulin in my system a couple hours into sleep. I don't eat before bed. So a lot of my morning routine is actually staged or, you know, set up by what I do um, the night before. If I'm sitting, you know, eating sugar and watching TV, my morning routine doesn't happen. Can't do it. Can't do yoga with a full stomach and, and crappy sleep, you know? So mm -hmm. my daily or, you know, six day a week yoga or stronger yoga practice is actually the reason that my morning routine uh, became locked in. And that drove my nighttime behavior because I had to adjust what I was doing at night so I could actually get up and do yoga in the morning. Cause you, cause you, cause you, you know, can't eat a big pasta meal and then do yoga. It doesn't work. You know, <laughs> so you have to uh, sort of manage some of that or, or, you know, chronically being tired doesn't, not that fun to get up and work out when you're chronically tired. So I had to, um, over the past few years, I've adjusted my morning to optimize those first few hours before the rest of the world uh, impinges upon me essentially. Yeah. I love that you mentioned that your morning routine kind of starts with the right lifestyle components the night before mm. and i find the same thing um if i eat late if basically if i eat after it's dark outside i have you know an, an effect from that for a couple of days because yeah. you have yeah. low energy the next day you feel kind of crappy you might make poor choices because yep. you're already feeling bad so like not working out or whatever uh -huh. um so yeah if you go to bed yeah. if you eat before bed you wake up hungry and tired. Yeah. If you yep. don't eat before bed, you wake up full and feeling refreshed. <laughs> it's so weird, but it definitely works because, you know, I, if I, if I get my, my last meal of the day in, which is usually also 
my first meal of the day sometimes when uh, I just, I'll eat at like four or five and that'll mm-hmm. be just my only meal that day. And it works. That works the best. I feel the best when I do that. If I mm-hmm. eat two meals, um, then I try not to push that last one further yeah. than like 6 PM. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so one last question and you may have already gone over this in our discussion today, but if you could provide just one piece of tangible information that people could put into practice in their life today, that would have an overall greater impact on their health and wellness. Um, what would that be? With the understanding that brains were always changing. Um, it's really a question of, you know, what, what is most important to you in terms of making an impact? There's basic regulatory things happening all the time. Sleep, stress, mood, and attention are sort of um, resources that are flexible and they want to stretch and then, you know, go back to ground or like a sailboat, you know, gets pushed over and springs back up or you're too young to remember this, Kayla, but we had these toys called Weeble Wobbles in the eighties and, and you knock them over little egg shaped uh, Fisher oh, Price yeah. toys, you knock them over, they spring right back up. That's what should happen with your stress, your sleep, your mood, your attention, regulatory stability. You push it off to one side, it tends to settle back into the same stability basin uh, above these regulatory forces, if you will. Um, that is not something to ignore. If your regulatory stability is thrown off in any of the core things, it's actually a big deal and will bleed into every aspect of your performance and, and enjoyment of life, suffering, everything. So maybe it's your attention, maybe it's your stress, maybe it's your sleep, maybe it's your mood. One of those things is not sorted out. You gotta get it under control. And oddly enough, sleep tends to be one that affects all the others. So mm-hmm. if your sleep's not thrown off, or even if it is, even if your sleep is not thrown off, um, I would suggest that you need to optimize that as one of the first things. So again, don't eat before bed, don't eat right upon waking. Um, other circadian entrainment tricks include um, uh, Light in the morning. I don't care about light in the evening. I know I'm a heretical biohacker for saying evening light and blue light doesn't matter, but I don't think it matters that much for people. I mean, look, waking up in the middle of the night, I saw a study about a month ago, waking up in the middle of the night and look at your cell phone and check the time with a bright blast of uh, light in your face and browsing the web for a while, like some people do, um, delays circadian phase by one hour, by only one hour. Mm. Yeah, it's an issue, but like yeah. against everything else people do, I, I'm, you know, I think there's bigger... Uh, impactful things you can do, like not eating in the morning. Another big thing right. for circadian entrainment is exercising in the morning fasted instead of at the end of the day. Um, mm-hmm. If you are like, I'm sure you are relatively adapted to a one meal a day lifestyle or maybe paleo or primal where you're fat adapted, you can burn fats and you do a morning workout um, before fast, uh, b- before eating, you burn six times the adipose that you would burn the same body the same fat adaptation by working out in the evening after having a midday meal. Six times the adipose uh, stripped off your body. So just to bribe yourself, (laughs) you know, to to work out at the right time, don't eat first, work out in the morning. Um, So the big circadian things again are not eating in the evening, working out in the morning before fasting and keeping your morning wake time roughly consistent. Um, Those are somewhat critical. I think those can make a really large impact for everyone. And the last thing to add in, you should also be meditating. You know, don't just do something, sit there. Every morning, spend five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, doesn't have to be a lot. Meditation's not easy, but it's also not that hard. Um, it's just something you gotta do, it's a, it's a practice. Just like exercise, um, 
doesn't so matter uh, uh, doesn't matter so much what you do it matters if you do it uh, the rest exercise is the one that you do the best meditation is the one that you do um, it's the regularity of the practice that produces change not that one day in the gym uh, so I would say to round it all out, you should be really protecting your sleep jealously and guarding it and, and re-entraining it. You know, there's lots of tricks I can teach people in maybe a different podcast about ways to reset your circadian uh, stuff. But the next thing then is to add some mindfulness and some anchored attention practice to your day, uh, ideally every day, ideally in the morning. Mm, I love those tips and I'm glad to hear that I'm doing most of them. So great. great. <laughs> um, thank you so much for sharing that. And again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your amazing, very useful knowledge with all of us. Well, my um, pleasure. Yeah. If the listeners are interested in connecting with you or finding out more about what you do, I know you already mentioned um, the website, but could you just mention the places where sure. people can find you? Yeah, on, on all the socials, it's um, either Peak Brain LA or it's uh, um, Andrew Hill PhD. It's always one or the other. And, or both, actually. So feel free to check us out on socials and ask us your cool brain questions. We always want to hear from the, you know, the unique things that are happening. And um, uh, we, t we also tend to have some podcasts. I have a, one that I've hosted for a while. It's in hiatus now. It'll be coming back soon called Head First with Dr. Hill, which is on iTunes. Um, I'm also uh, a somewhat... Um, uh, I, well, I, I, I get around, so you can find me on the podcast, too, if you're, if you're interested. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so Andrew Hill, PhD, Peak Brain, LA as the two socials, and then Head First with Dr. Hill as my podcast. You can check out some, some cool guests we have in the can there on YouTube or, or iTunes. So. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Kayla. Thank you so much for listening today. You are the driving force behind this podcast. So if you liked this episode, please let me know by leaving a review. And I would also love it if you could share, text, email, or even screenshot the podcast episode and share it on your social media and be sure to tag me, biocurious underscore Kayla, so that I can repost your post. This really helps me to grow the podcast and continue bringing useful, actionable health information from amazing experts from around the world straight to your ear. 